0: We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at Bellencat.com. The FT Hello, and welcome to this edition of World Weekly. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today, we look at America's historic decision to normalise relations with Cuba. With me to discuss this breakthrough is our Latin America editor, John Paul Rathbone. John Paul, did you see this coming? I think everyone has been seeded quite a
1: lot. There have been briefings with State Department officials. um, And then when you're in Cuba, you also see there's been a lot of investment and opening of new facilities, this new port at Mariel, which was all premised on the end of of the U.S. embargo. So it's sort of been hovering in the air.
0: Obama has said, as has Raul Castro, that they want to get the embargo lifted. But is it going to be that simple? Because there are powerful forces in the U.S. that aren't happy with this decision.
1: So the embargo is codified in law and requires an act of Congress to change. And of course, Republicans control the Senate and the House of Representatives. So a vote may be a difficult way through. But the Republicans aren't necessarily all anti this this move, although some are.
0: And is there anything that Obama can do without getting the law repealed? Are there, are there some easing of the embargo that he can do by executive order?
1: Well, that's what he's done now. Yeah. And he's expanded travel Basically, Americans can travel to Cuba, but there's this really cumbersome process. And certain companies have been trading with Cuba for a while, especially in agriculture. And I think to distill all these moves down that Obama did overnight, he's sort of removed this clunky U.S. bureaucracy. And now the way forward is going to be
0: citizen-to-citizen contact. And what are the implications for Cuba itself? I mean, how rapidly do you think the society is likely to change now that it's exposed much more openly to this giant neighbour? That's the million-dollar question.
1: To date, the completely ossified Cuban economy, Soviet-style, there's been tiny amounts of liberalisation around the edges – Um, But whenever there's a problem, it's always been possible to blame someone else. Now, under Raul Castro, that's changed slightly. But there's incredible lack of capital and inputs. um, And this opening will make uh, it much easier for street-level Cubans to, to get by and do their thing. And as you create more space and you create less dependency on the state as an employer, you're de facto giving Cubans more autonomy and that in turn could snowball it's the perestroika versus glasnost sort of thing
0: does perestroika encourage glasnost and i think in the cuban case it would so in that sense uh, might the cuban government itself have some reservations about lifting the embargo at least lifting it too fast because it does have all sorts of implications
1: i think they'll they'll want it to go very slowly they'll want to try and manage it as much as possible they want it to be they want any kind of change to be controlled at the same time the Castro brothers are, are getting on very long in the tooth, and everyone is aware that whoever will follow them will lack the moral authority that came before. So then, the Castros need to leave something more than a ruined smoking economy behind them if the revolution in the broadest sense can be said, however generously you want to interpret it, to have survived.
0: And, uh, I mean, you you said, you used this phrase, a ruined smoking economy, and you've obviously been to Cuba a few times. Just give us a sense of what it feels like. I mean, how poor is it? How stuck in aspic is it? The television pictures one always sees are of these 1950s cars going around the streets. Is it really that backward?
1: I think it is. There are burgeoning little businesses. But when I mean little, I mean truly small. We're talking about a table on the street where, Someone will sell uh, cell phone repair services or a hairdresser. So we're talking uh, very low capitalized companies. There has been some agricultural cooperatives. You can't really call them private because they're arranged on a cooperative basis. Uh, and they're starting to happen too. But you really have to go back in your own mind and imagine what a Soviet-style economy is like. And that's really what Cuba is. And everything is sort of held together with rubber bands and tape.
0: And yet there are these claims made for the achievements of the Cuban revolution that, you know, there's universal health care, that there's decent education, that nobody goes hungry. Are those true? Um, well, I think the
1: dividing line between poverty and misery is very thin. And yes, there is uh, free health care, but uh, there may also be no medicines. And yes, there is good education and good literacy, but... You're forced to read, um, you know, communist and Marxist tracts. The doctors are paid a state wage and they earn less than taxi drivers. So there are all these incredible distortions. Having said that, there is a certain degree of pride on the island. Against that, there's also an incredible degree of cynicism about socialism and uh, about the ruling party. So you've got this strange mixture of nationalist pride an incredible cynicism um,
0: about the lie, if you like that is socialism looking forward uh, twenty years and of course this is speculation. give me a sense of, of what do you think Cuba might look like a modernized Cuba uh, th- that takes its place within within the Caribbean modernized Cuba twenty years down the road well you 've got immense
1: human capital in cuba you 've also got immense human capital outside the island, and I do maintain that the exiles are part of the solution and not part of the problem. It'll be a poor nation, but you've got a well-educated workforce within 90 miles of the world's largest market. And they're extremely entrepreneurial and um, capable, the Cubans famously. So in whatever field they work, whether it's in military or intelligence or trading or commerce. So um, although the starting position is a highly decapitalized economy, one has to hope at, with some foreign help as well, that uh, the future could be rosy.
0: You mentioned the exiles there. Now, traditionally, they've been seen, particularly the Miami Cubans, as the bloc that has opposed any uh, relaxation of the embargo, anything that looks like being soft on Castro. And we heard uh, yesterday when the embargo was lifted, Senator Marco Rubio, who's the most famous Cuban-American politician, coming out and condemning Obama's move to at least try and lift the embargo, is it your impression that the Cuban exiles in the U.S. will oppose this, will fight this all the way?
1: The, the Cuban exiles in the States are um, – uh, there's a lot of them. There's two million. And it's a generational – you're seeing a generational change. The older generations who lost everything into the revolution – Obviously, they nurture a visceral hatred of the Castro brothers and everything they represent, but there is a younger the younger generations rather uh, uh from say um forties and fifties below who have different attitudes, um, many of whom were born outside the island uh, and in fact, Cuban Americans have been among the most enthusiastic proponents of engagement, three hundred thousand travel to the island each year, and they send as much as $3 billion a year to their relatives on the island. So I'd say that opposition to the embargo within the Cuban American community is very nuanced and probably smaller than, uh, than 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 support would be. So how fast do you think we're going to see things change now? Potentially very fast. But on the other hand, you always you have to uh, take care with that. Uh, the metaphor I give is of Cuban baseball games. They have the same number of innings as US games, they have the same rules, the same players, and yet they take twice as long. So everything in Cuba can take an awfully long time. And the regime will also be taking special pains to try and keep this under control as much as possible.
0: Give us also a sense of the implications for US foreign policy, because the tenseness and the bitterness in the relationship with Cuba has been going on for so long. And it's it's been a kind of difficulty in America's relationship with the wider continent of Latin America, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's one of the core issues, and it's been a rallying cry for anti-Americanism within the region. It's sort of a totem, a shibboleth that they can, everyone can throw eggs at. And this will drain a lot of poison, Um, from those relations I think and that's not just a nice thing to have it's an important thing to have especially when you look around the region and you see Venezuela slipping into chaos if the US can exercise some purchase on Venezuela through Cuba which advises the government, then that can only be a good thing because Venezuela is truly a big problem that could be happening very soon. And then you also look to Colombia nearby, which is the U.S.'s biggest ally in the region, still uh, the second largest source of cocaine in the world. And there are peace talks going on there with the guerrillas, which have been mediated in Havana. So a lot of, strangely, a lot of local geopolitical currents are flowing through
0: Cuba. So there's quite a lot at stake here. So that suggests that Cuba is still despite the poverty that that you mentioned it it still is a sort of a big regional player in some sense uh, until recently it was a global player was a player in Africa and so on what's remarkable in Havana
1: is, when, is you see the number of nationalities passing through. There are more foreign embassies in Havana, someone once told me, than anywhere else. I mean, every country has a representative there for legacy reasons, and it does continue to punch above its weight. Whether it will continue to do so in the truly post-Cold War scenario and, and then become sort of a, an island which every once in a while you see a news title from, I mean, that that is a possibility. But the the revolution has been so charismatic, and the Castro. Brothers, such huge figures that when they go and the revolution kind of segues away into something different then it may become a much smaller
0: place indeed. Well on that rather interesting note John Paul Rathbone thank you very much indeed. That's it for World Weekly this week. We're going to take a break now until the new year so thank you for your company over the year and we'll be back with more discussion of world affairs next year in 2015. For more downloads go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images and public records and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellencat.com.